The reason I had that passage read this morning is because four times that passage mentions that Christ is coming again quickly. We get language like shortly, and then Christ himself speaks and says, I'm coming quickly, behold, I'm coming quickly, surely I'm coming quickly, I'm coming soon. And the topic and the theme of today's sermon is God's timing and how we're to think about this idea that Jesus is coming again quickly, that he's coming again soon. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Again, the main idea of this passage is that we need to gain a right perspective on the timing of Christ's return. We need to get a right perspective on the timing of Christ's return because it is vital to our growth and a confident assurance of His return. We've been talking about a confident assurance in Christ's return, not just a certainty that Jesus Christ is coming again, or even a certainty that He's coming again quickly or soon, but a, a trusting reliance, a, a spirit of readiness, a spirit of hastening of His quick and soon return. And so we've been in a series in Second Peter on Christian growth, and we've been in a series in chapter 3 of Second Peter in growing on, in a confident assurance or a spirit of readiness in Christ's return. Now this also includes a spirit of readiness, a spirit of longing and desire and hastening of the judgment by fire that will be accompanied by his return. The Bible tells us that when Christ returns, he's going to come in fiery judgment. He's going to destroy the wicked and he's going to destroy all sins. And we need to be growing in a desire for this day, to see this day come, to see it come quickly. And of course, we need to grow in this desire because it's not natural to us. Our natural instinct, our inclination in this life is to love this life. We all love our lives. We love the comfortable place that we find ourselves in. We all have future plans. And for a believer, something that we need to be growing in is a confident assurance that Christ is coming again, a readiness, a desire for it, a hastening of that day, the destruction of the world. Well, in chapter 3, Peter has told us that vital to this confident assurance, this spirit of readiness, this spirit of hastening even, is first of all that Christians uh, must be remembering that we are at peace with God. No one is confidently assured, no one is expecting or ready for Christ's return who isn't remembering that he has peace with God. That's the first thing that Peter mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. We are confident that the Father loves us, that we have been renewed and baptized and that God has reserved the kingdom for us. His will is to give us the kingdom. We know that we have peace with God because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not love us, He has not renewed our minds, and He has not given us the kingdom because of our works, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is all by grace, and that's the foundation on which we stand. And on that foundation, already our hearts begin to yearn and to long for the return of our Savior who has shown to us such grace. And then he went on to speak to us in verse 3 through 7, that in order to grow in readiness, we need to be putting away all scoffing. And this is something that we're going to face from outside and from within. And we need to put away a spirit of scoffing. We need to take this doctrine very seriously. And we need to be trusting God in it. It's full of grace. It's a day of salvation and deliverance for us. And today, Peter is going to turn our attention here in verse 8 through 10 on this idea that vital to growing in a confident expectation and readiness for Christ's soon coming is gaining a right perspective on what he means 
when he says that he's coming quickly, when he says he's coming soon, what do we mean by soon? More importantly, what does he mean when he says that he's coming soon? And so let's look at our text very briefly for just a moment. And before I read the text to you, let me say a few things. One of the things you're going to notice in this text is that Peter calls, uh, he's using God's name, the Lord. And he's referring here especially to Jesus Christ. He's referring to Christ in his divinity. And I just say that very briefly. We know that Jesus Christ has two natures. He's fully God and he's fully man. And in this particular passage, Peter is speaking of Christ and his return. And he especially wants us to think of this under the idea that Jesus Christ is divine. That he is God. He's equal with his Father. He is the Lord. Well, the context is that Christ has said that he's going to come soon. The scoffers have said, if it's going to come soon, where is it? And so Peter has to address the issue of timing, and he says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We can break this text into three parts. We need to gain three perspectives, or we need to gain perspective in three areas when it comes to the question of God's timing and His return. In verse 8, we need to gain the perspective of God's eternity. The perspective of God's eternity. In verse 9, we need to gain the perspective of God's patience. The perspective of God's patience. In verse 10, we need to gain the perspective of God's moment of action on the day of judgment. The perspective of God's moment of action when he acts, when he comes again on that day in that moment. And so we need to look at all three of these. So in verse 8, we need to gain the perspective of God's eternity. Again, look at verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I want you to notice here Peter's logic. The first thing that he says to us is he doesn't want to overlook something. And then he turns our attention immediately. He cites Psalm 90, which we had read in our unison reading, which deals with the doctrine of God's eternity. And the doctrine of God's eternity deals with two ideas, God's transcendence and the relationship of time to God's transcendence. Peter immediately turns our attention to the doctrine of God, especially the doctrine of God's eternity. When we're thinking of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of God's eternity, we're thinking of a transcendent God and time's relationship to Him. And we need to get this. Peter tells us not to overlook this. Do you see that exhortation? That's so important. Why does Peter exhort us to this? Well, he he exhorts us to it because it's our tendency to overlook this fact. (laughs) This is exactly what our temptation is. This is our natural state. This is our inclination. It's not easy thinking about the doctrine of God, thinking about His transcendence, thinking about things like His incommunicable attributes, things like His eternity. These things are difficult for us. They're difficult for us because we're creatures. We're not used to thinking of things. This is outside our common experience. We get busy and distracted with the everyday life. And there aren't eternal things in our everyday life. 
And we need to be brought again to a position of worship before the living God, before the eternal God, before the transcendent God. And we need to remember who God is. We need to remember who it is who's speaking when he says, I'm coming again quickly or I'm coming again soon. Now, why do we struggle with this other than simply being creatures? Because we're weak. Well, it's rooted in our sin. The second commandment tells us to worship God as he truly is. So turn with me really quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, because I want to address this. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8 through 10 is the second commandment. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments and the First Commandment. God tells us to worship Him exclusively. In the Second Commandment, He teaches us how to worship Him truly. And the principle of that idea is that we're to worship Him for who He truly is. We're to worship Him with a right understanding of who He is. This is vital to our Christian faith. But look at how it's stated in the Second Commandment. Especially here in verse 8, God says... You shall not make for yourself a carved image, a graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now what's important to notice here is what God is dealing with is the manner of our worship. He's already dealt with who we are to worship. He's not forbidding idolatry in this commandment, or that's not His purpose. He's already addressed that in the first commandment. In the first commandment, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. But here he's saying, when you come to me and you worship me, and you call me the Lord your God, you are to worship me with a right understanding of who I am. You are not to think of me as if you could grave my image, as if you could carve something. You are not to think of me as if I'm like anything in your common experience. That's the whole idea of forbidding the making of idols. You're not to think of me as a creature. I'm not like a lion. I'm not like a bear. I'm not like a man. I'm not like a bug. Or any of the things that the nations of the world and the unbelievers make it turn into idols. You're to worship me for who I truly am, and I am divine. I am, I am God indeed. I am the creator, the maker of this world. I am outside of this world. I am bigger than this world. I am fundamentally unique, separate, different from this world. This world is filled with things that are like me, but I am not like anything in this world. That's what God is getting at. He's hammering that point home. This is why we struggle with the doctrine of God and the doctrine of His transcendence. It's a sin problem, mainly. God commands us not to do it. He gives us a reason to not to do it. Verse 9, because He's a jealous God. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm jealous for your right knowledge of me. I'm jealous that you know me for who I really am. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, who don't take this doctrine seriously or this commandment, but I show steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me. And keep my commandments. God is jealous for our right understanding of Him. And our right understanding of God begins with the idea that He is transcendent, He is above the things of this world. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, helps us to understand the doctrine of God's transcendence, to, to understand the, the idea that there's a distinction between God the Creator and the creature. 
And he paints this beautiful picture, one that you're probably very familiar with in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, where he paints this picture of the universe resting in the hollow of God's hand. You could put the whole creation, the whole universe as we think of it, and it is resting in the hollow of God's hand. The picture is that God is something different, distinct, a separate, apart, and much greater than this universe. And this is what Peter's exhorting us to do. Don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, a thousand years is one day, a day a thousand years. God transcends our experiences, especially with reference to time. The idea that God is bigger than this universe and transcendent to it and outside of it means that He's outside of time. You can't measure God in terms of time. God is eternal. That's the point that Peter's reminding us of here especially. And he turns our attention to Psalm 90, which we had read just a moment ago. Take out your unison reading for a minute. Let's look at it. The God that we serve is majestic in His eternal glory. He's above the heavens and so on. But look how Moses puts this in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 90. He speaks to the Lord. He says, Lord, You have been our dwelling place. You've been our hiding place. You've been our refuge. You've been the place that Your people go to seek salvation for all generations. Now this is Moses stepping outside of time. And he's saying, Lord, You have been the refuge of Your people from the beginning of creation and You will be to the end of creation. For all generations, You are the same. You are a Savior. You are a refuge. You are a hiding place for Your people. Now what is he appealing to here but that God doesn't change and that God is great and He's above time itself so that for all time, God's people come running to Him to trust in Him. He's eternal. But then he really drives home the point in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, before there was a creation, before there were calendars, before there was something such as time, before there were generations, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He inhabits eternity is the idea that Moses is speaking there. And Isaiah again in Isaiah 57 Verse 15 says something similar. When he speaks about God, he says he's the Holy One who inhabits eternity. He dwells apart from this world. He dwells high and lifted up apart from this world. He's eternal. He's outside of time. And Peter here is especially addressing us on this point. When we think of the timing of Christ's return, we have to remember who it is who's speaking to us. He's the eternal God. He's the God who is not like any of His creatures. You could place the whole span of human history and all time in the palm of His hand. You could put the whole creation and its whole life, its whole history, from creation to the other side of eternity. You could place the whole thing in the hollow of His hand. For Him, a thousand years is like a day, a day like a thousand years. And so he wants us to think about the relationship of time to God, to this majestic, holy, high and lifted up, eternal being who inhabits everlasting. Thinking of God transcending time is especially difficult, even for intelligent Christians. You'd be surprised how many theologians stumble on this point. It's difficult. Many think of God in terms of time. I'm willing to bet you have done so yourself. It's easy to think of God as experiencing 
time and succession of moments like we do. It's, almost, it's very difficult for us to get out of the context that we're in. We, we live in the context of the succession of time. One day comes before another. And this is our life. We live and breathe in this kind of existence. But we have to remember for God it's not like that. Time is a creature of God, we're going to say. There's a number of reasons why this is true. There's no before or after with God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Now the reason for this, we know, is because time is a creature. God invented time. He invented history. It's in the palm of His hand. God is sovereign over time. Therefore, He's not subject to time. God isn't bound to play time's rules. Time plays by God's rules. God is bigger than time. And time can't contain God. I gave you the quote from R.C. Sproul in the insert, if you read it, where he reminded us of that ancient doctrine that Christians have repeated many, many times since the Middle Ages, that the finite cannot contain the infinite. Time cannot contain God. Now, what's the point of all of this? Other than to to bow before Him and worship Him and stand in utter awe of Him, well, the point is this, that God is present in every moment of time, in the fullness of His being. He's present from the beginning to the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, we heard Christ say from Revelation. God is present in every moment of time. We can think of this the other way around. Time is a measure of change. God doesn't change. Therefore, God is the same in every moment of time. Therefore, God is present in the fullness of His unchanging being in every moment of time. God is always present. He's as present with Abraham and the Ur of the Chaldeans as He is with the Israelites in the wilderness, as He is with Christ on the cross, as He is with you on the other side of eternity. You can't think of God in terms of time. You must think of Him as transcending time itself and therefore near and present in every moment of time in the fullness of who He is. It's a wonderful concept. It's a wonderful idea. It stretches us. It presses us. But now here's the point that Peter's making is that this means that any moment in time is soon for God. It's all near to Him. It's close to Him. He doesn't experience history like we do. He doesn't live in succession moments of time. He lives in an eternal present in His majestic transcendence. Every moment is soon to Him. Look at how Peter puts this both broadly speaking and deeply speaking. Broadly speaking, he says that for God, a thousand years is like a day. You could take the whole span of history You can condense it down for God. It's like a moment. He's present in all of it, and He's unchanging. It's like but a day. It's like but a moment. Poole explains it like this. The sense is that though there is a great difference of time, long and short, with us who are subject to time and are measured by it, yet with Him who is eternal, without succession, to whom nothing is past, nothing future, but all things present, there is no difference of time, None long, none short, but a thousand years, nay, all the time that hath run out since the creation of the world is but as a day. And we are not to judge the Lord's delay in coming by our own sins, but by God's eternity. Which is why Peter's speaking to us the way that he is. Don't overlook this fact. Don't remember. He says, don't forget. Remember who it is who speaks to you when he says, surely I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. 
Remember the awesome majesty of his being. Soon for God. Could be a long time from now for us. God could delay a million years and it would be soon for him. But Peter speaks deeply, and I think this is the most interesting thing. He goes beyond Psalm 90 here, and he says it from a different perspective. He thinks of it in terms of the depth, the the infinitude of every moment, of every day. He says that a thousand years, he says a day, a moment is like a thousand years. This is how one commentator put it. He said, God sees time with an intensity we lack. One day with God is like a thousand years. This is the side of the coin we don't usually think about, but it's also wonderful. If God is present in every moment of time, then he's fully present in each moment of time. Now, maybe this idea is too big for us, but just think about it for just a minute. What if you could just right now pause the the universe? You You could just pause the universe right now, just as things are. And then you were free to walk around for just a moment and experience this one moment to its absolute fullest. You could pause the universe. So we all pause. And for just a moment, everybody who's in the pews, they're just sitting there still. I'm standing here like this, you know, preaching to you. <laughs> and you and, but you realize you can get up and you can walk around. So you, walk, you start walking around. You can read people's notes and you can see who's asleep. And you can come up here and you can move me, you can move me around and make me be a goofy Put me in a goofy pose or something. And you realize you can walk outside the door. Everything is stopped. You go out into the street. The cars are stopped. You go to the street corner. The street corner is stopped. Everything is stopped. You realize that you can do this as long as you want. You can press the unpause button anytime that you want. And you get the idea that you can explore the world. You have, you have all the time just to explore this moment. And you can go out and you can search the details of God's creation as they are in this moment. Not just in this world, but to the end of the universe. (laughs) Think about the level of detail we're talking about. Think about the infinitude of the majesty and the glory of everything that is happening in this one moment. And Peter's reminding us here that God is present in all of it. It's not just that the world is condensed, as it were, because He's eternal, but it's infinitely deep, Because he's eternal. And your mind blows. And then it blows as you think about the fact that this whole history of the universe is filled with this kind of depth. Every moment. By every moment. By every moment. All of the wonder. And that's what Peter's bringing out to us. It's not just that a thousand years are like a day. A day is like a thousand years. Which is to say, even if it was a long time, God could come back in the next moment. It's an infinitude to him. You see, God is majestic. He's wonderful. And what Peter's calling us to, what he's exhorting us to here, is not to overlook this fact. Because this is the kind of thing you're not used to thinking about, is it? You don't think about time. You don't think about time in relationship to an infinite being. You don't think about eternity. It's hard to think about. It's opposed to your sin nature to think about. God is holy. He's infinite. He's eternal. We owe Him the utmost of our being in worship and praise. And as believers, we stand in awe of Him for even just this moment as we think about His eternity again. 
So Peter's telling us that we need to remember something. We need, we need to remember who's speaking. And that means, first of all, that he can come at any time. Quickly can be any time. We can't predict when he's going to come. Because an infinite and eternal God has spoken to us. But brothers, I encourage you for just a moment to remember when he does come, who it is who's coming. Because he's the infinite one. He's the eternal one. And you will meet him face to face, the Bible promises, and you will know him in a way that you do not know him in this life, that you can't possibly know him in this life. You will know him, the one who is eternal, the one who is transcendent. And that ought to lead us to adoration and praise, and it ought to stir in us a longing to see him indeed. But then again, brothers, remember who it is who's speaking to us. You know, we can be so selfish. We can be so selfish. We have trouble seeing at the end of our nose. You know, everyone in this room knows that someone that you love, one of the things that you have to do when you're relating to people that you love is you have to see things from their perspective. You have to get out of yourself sometimes. In fact, this is the hard part of life because we don't like getting outside of our own perspective. We always see things from our own perspective. And we do so because we're selfish, and Christ is liberated from that. And one of the things that we enjoy as Christians is coming out of that and learning to see life from the perspective of others, and doing so cheerfully and to enjoy doing it out of a genuine love for the person whose perspective we're looking out of. Every, uh, every, especially every couple has to learn to do this. I have to learn to see life from Abby's perspective. She has to learn to see it from my perspective. You know, the one person that we neglect is God. And in many ways, that's what Peter is telling us here is don't overlook this fact. Remember who's speaking when Jesus says, I'm coming soon. When he says, I'm coming quickly, behold, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Surely I'm coming quickly. He's not speaking from, uh, to, to inform your perspective on how near he is. <laughs> He's speaking from from his own eternal perspective to remind you, brothers and sisters, that he's ready to come. It's quick. It's soon for him. He's ready for that day. He's longing for that day. He's hastening that day. I'm coming quickly, Jesus says. He says it three times. He's showing us how ready he is. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Peter already brought up this idea, if you'll remember way back. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, when he tells us that God's prepared for us, he's preserving us and keeping us for an inheritance that's ready to be revealed. This is why sometimes you'll hear theologians and pastors preach and they'll say the world to come is pressing in upon this age. The reason for that is because Christ is ready to come again. He's coming quickly. He's coming soon. That's not meant to be for your perspective. That's meant to communicate to you his perspective. (laughs) He's coming quickly. The eternal one, the infinite one, your Messiah. Well, secondly, then in verse 9, we need to gain the perspective of God's patience. We've gained the perspective of God's eternity. We need to gain the perspective of God's patience when we think about the timing of the second coming. Look at what he says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, Peter's point here is that if Christ is so ready to come, why doesn't he come? And the answer that he gives in verse 9 is because he's being patient with you. 
for your sake, he delays. So Peter tells us that God is not slow. He's patient. The word for slow here can mean slack. Some translations say he's not slack, as some count slackness. The idea is lazy or late. Peter is saying God is not lazy in fulfilling his promise in the way that people think about laziness or slackness. People count laziness or slackness as slacking off, shuffling their feet, coasting, uncaring, distracted, irresponsible, showing up late to avoid responsibility, putting things off, not goal-oriented. Peter is saying God is none of those things. Christ is He's ready to come. He's ready to come now. So then how do we account for the delay or the apparent delay? Well, it's because God is patient. Notice that word patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient. That word patient means he gives things their time. He gives things time. There's two helpful passages in the scriptures that will really illumine the meaning of that word. And the first is found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 26. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember, that's the place where Jesus is talking about the servant who owes his master a huge debt that he can't pay. And the master has called him to an account and says, it's time to pay the account and the debt. And you remember the servant is begging for mercy. He falls down on his knees before his master and he humbles himself and he says, please, master, be patient with me and I'll repay everything. Give me time. Give me more time. I need your patience. This is the word that Peter is using here. It means to give something time. We see another good example of this in James chapter 5, verse 7, where he speaks about the farmer who's patient with the crops to bear their fruits. We know that every farmer is ready to harvest his crops. He has the equipment to do so. He has the manpower to do so. He has the relationships in the marketplace to do so. But he has to wait. He has to give time for the crops to grow and to produce their fruit. He has to be patient. That's the idea here. God is patient. He gives things time. Now remember in the Bible, patient, to give something its time does not mean idle. The farmer is hard at work preparing for the harvest. He's tending to his garden. He's tending to his crops. God is at work. God is directing all things to their end. God is swift, prompt, thorough. He is steady until the end. He's working until the job is finished. He's not lazy, Peter says, as some count laziness. He's not slack as some count slackness. God is engaged with the utmost care and love for every detail. And every detail is being ordained by God and moved by God for the ultimate well-being of his people. That is ultimately the return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. God is not wasting a single moment of time, not a single detail in every moment of time. God is preparing his people to meet him. He doesn't waste time. But notice then who God is patient towards. God is patient towards you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. The you here, of course, means those who will believe in him. It means the elect. That's who the letter is written to. I'm not going to make that argument over again. All of those who believe in him, all of those who will ever believe in him. He's giving them time. He's giving them time. He's patient. What grace we see here. What majesty, what grace in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
God is patient for what? Your repentance. What's he waiting for? What's he giving you time for? Repentance. Look at what he says again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This refers both to the lost who will be saved and to the saved who are still being sanctified. And so this is an assurance to each one of us in this room today. It refers to the lost who will be saved. Remember Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 and 32, how God speaks. He says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Would I not rather that he should turn from his way and live? It's the will of God. It's the wish of God that the lost repent and turn and be saved and believe in this majestic and gracious Savior. Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Turn to me, God says, and live. It's a call and a cry and a command to the lost to be saved. God is delaying His coming for your sake. It refers to the saved who will still be sanctified. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. God is speaking to His covenant people. He's not speaking to the lost. He's speaking to His own people there. And He says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart. That's a call to repentance to the people of God. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. God calls his people to repentance. He's delaying his return to give you time to make progress in your holiness. He's waiting on you. He's giving you time. God promises that he will save all who repent. He will relent from his disaster. Do you remember Nineveh in the Old Testament? Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw that they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And this is God's promise to the lost who will turn to him, and it's his promise to you today if you're in Christ, and you will turn to him, and you will seek repentance in the areas of your life where you still need to seek repentance. Well, we could think about what Peter is saying here like this. Why hasn't Christ returned yet? If he's quickly coming, if he's, if he's the eternal God to whom all moments are present, and he himself has said, I'm ready, I'm coming, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, why does he wait? Well, he's giving you time. He's, giving, he's gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and he's giving you time to turn and to repent. We could think of it like this. Peter's point is that God wastes no moments Every moment that he delays is a moment he used to prepare his people to meet him. And so we must waste no time preparing to meet him in return. We must repent today. We must repent now. We must be ready for him now. We must be living godly lives and seeking to live godly lives. Let me frame it like this. Any of you here today who are in Christ, I'm speaking to the believing. Do you want to be found by Christ the way things are now? Do you want him to return right now? 
and, he, and so he can find you the way that you are here now. He's giving you time. He's waiting on you. He's calling you to repentance. He's very gracious. God gives us time, but not to waste it. And then this is where we go in verse 10. Peter makes his next point. Yes, he's patient, but we can't presume upon his patience. He can come back at any time. And he's waiting and he's patient, but there is a day that he's ordained. This is why he says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It'll come suddenly and unexpectedly. We can't presume upon God's patience. The day will come. You remember the flood. When God destroyed the world in the flood narrative, he gave the people 120 years. But the day did come. He was very patient with them. He gave them the preaching of Noah. He gave them the illustration of the ark. But the floodwaters came. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his patience, his forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, forgetting that he's given you this time in order that you might repent? And so the point that Peter is making is, yes, God is patient with us and he's gracious with us, but the time to act is now. He's encouraging us to seek repentance. If we're outside of Christ, to turn now. If we're in Christ, to seek repentance and the things that still need to be repented of now. Today's the time to act. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Let's look at Peter's language here. His use of imagery. It's beautiful. This thief imagery. I want you to turn with me to two places in your Bibles. The first is Matthew chapter 24, verse 43. Where Jesus uses this thief imagery, this thief language. Matthew chapter 24 verse, uh, 24, verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known. I still hear people flipping. I'll give you time. <laughs> Matthew 24, 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake. And would not have let his house be broken into. Of course, Jesus is talking about the suddenness, the unexpectedness, the it's already too lateness of what we experience when a thief breaks in. Luke chapter 12, verse 39. Look there with me as well. Turn there. What I want you to notice from both of these texts is the way that Jesus speaks of the master of the house. I want to explore this language, this use of language for just a moment. To illustrate our point. Luke chapter 12 verse 39. Now Luke chapter 12 verse 39 is a little bit of a different context. It's not just a master of a house and a thief breaking in. It's actually servants who have been good stewardship over a house. The master of the house has left. He's left his servants in charge. And they don't know when he's going to come back to hold them accountable for how well they stewarded his household. How well they took care of things while he was gone. And he compares this sudden return of the master to like a thief. So Luke chapter 12, verse 39, if he comes in the second watch or in the third hour and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now, here's what I want to bring out to you for just a minute. The master of the house that we're reading about here in uh, Luke and in Matthew and in other places where Jesus uses this language and this imagery 
is uh, not like the house that you live in. (laughs) You really can't make a comparison between yourself and the master of the house. The master of the house was a very wealthy man. And he lived on an estate. The house that Jesus is referring to there is an estate. It's a big business type place. He has lots of servants as evidenced by the text. He's a wealthy man. He has great possessions. He has fields and he has many people who work for him. When he speaks about a burglar or when he speaks about a thief breaking in, he's not, he's, he's not intending for us to think about a petty theft or a burglary like what you might think of as somebody breaking into your house. Now, it's not that that's completely off the table, but there's more to this passage than that. If we'll think about it for just a few minutes. He's thinking here of somebody who owns vast land, somebody who's more akin in the modern age to a, uh, uh, the owner of a big business. If that man had knew when the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, the picture here is not of a burglary. It is of a heist. It is of a theft. The thief that Jesus has in mind is not a petty thief, although the word can mean that. He has in mind a highly skilled professional who has thought carefully about how to get into the master's house, how to get past the servants and through the fields and to the most treasured possession that he has hidden away in his house. The kind of possession that once it's stolen is going to mean the ruin of the owner of the house. Total destruction, total devastation and ruination of his estate. If he had known the time that the thieves were planning to break in, he wouldn't have allowed it to happen. It's it's, it's, It's a devastating consequence when these thieves hit this house, and it's irreversible. Once they have the treasure, he can't get it back. He's already ruined. And the reason that Peter's telling us that God is going to come on a day like a thief is to provoke these images in our mind. If you think about a good heist, you've probably seen a good heist movie. (laughs) Then you'll understand the point that's being made in the New Testament. And by Peter here, a good heist is well planned. It's thought out beforehand. It is worked with great coordination. All the pieces have to be put in place and designed and ordained for their particular moment. A good heist is high stakes, as I've already indicated to you. A total plundering of the master's goods. In taking the one item, it's his most prized possessions. You've ruined his estate. He can't recover. A good heist is swiftly executed. In other words, when it's time to act, it happens in a moment. All the pieces come together in a moment. It's exciting to watch and to see if you've ever seen it in a movie or something. We get moved by it. It happens swiftly. It's executed. The master doesn't see it coming, and he doesn't have time to react when he does. Paul captures all three ideas for us also in 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me very briefly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And he uses the further illustration of birth pangs to grasp this idea of suddenness. No time to react. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. There's no time to respond. We can't presume upon God's patience because at the moment that he acts, whatever that might be, and it could be any time, there isn't any more time to prepare. There's no more time to repent or to be ready. There's no time to react. And so Peter's point is that we can't presume upon God's patience. God's judgment is coming quickly. It's coming soon. When Christ returns with his personal presence to gather his people to himself, he's going to destroy the world in fire. And that means the destruction of the ungodly. He's at work. He's not delaying to see that moment come to pass. Zephaniah 1.14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2 through 3, as Habakkuk makes the complaint to the Lord, of when he will return and why he doesn't come more quickly. God answers him in verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it, that he may swiftly respond. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay Revelation 22, Jesus says three times, I'm coming quickly. It does not delay. We can't presume upon his patience. When he comes, there will be no time to react. There'll be no time to respond. We are to respond and to react now, today. And to turn to Christ if we're outside of Christ. And to continue to seek repentance and godly lives of holiness if we're in Christ. Preparing ourselves for his coming. Readying ourselves to see him. And to be seen in judgment by him. Peter describes the moment that God will strike. Look at the end of verse 10. The language is vivid. It's apocalyptic. I'm going to spend more time on it next week. So I'm just going to very briefly touch on it here. Again, it's this moment of swiftness and utter destruction. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Notice that Peter mentions three things here. First, the heavens will pass away with a roar. This is a picture of swiftness. Like if you've ever been standing on the side of a highway and a big 18-wheeler comes roaring by in a moment. No time to respond, no time to react, just to behold in terror as it sweeps by. The heavenly bodies will be dissolved. It's universal in scope. There will be no place to hide. There'll be no time to run to hide. No refuge will be left remaining in a moment. Swiftly, with a roar, the earth will be exposed. That is the idea that the works will be exposed to judgment. To the judgment seat of the eternal Christ. Who sees all. Well, the point is the point that we must prepare now. We cannot presume upon his patience. How thankful we are for his patience that he gives us time, but we cannot delay. We cannot waste that time that he gives us. When God decides to act, it will be too late to respond. It will be too late to get ready or to prepare. Today's the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, believe in him. Repent and believe in him. And so Christ is ready, brothers. He's not delaying. I'm coming quickly. That's his word to you, the eternal God. He's patient towards you so that you can get ready. 
And when he comes, it will be too late. You must get ready now. Well, if you're outside of Christ, consider his grace this morning. Consider that he's given you time to repent, to come to him, and to believe in him and to be saved. He promises you in the scriptures that if you come to him, if you take refuge in him, that you will be saved from the great judgment. God will show you mercy. He will relent from the disaster against you. He doesn't wish for you to perish, but to find repentance. Come to Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, consider the grace of Jesus Christ. He's giving you time to repent. Use it. Fill up what is lacking in your repentance. Fill up what is lacking in your good works. Prepare yourself to meet such a gracious and such a majestic and wonderful Savior as this. Again, I ask you, do you want to be found as you are? Do you really want Jesus to come now? (laughs) And you know what's in your own heart. He sees all of it. Make yourself ready. Make yourself ready. The the bridegroom is coming. (laughs) He's coming quickly. He's ready. He would come yesterday. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. Repent. Repent and believe in Him.